Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everybody, it's Jack from Cultaholic here once again with my final matches of the month of 2023. I know I'm speaking to you, of course, in January 2024, but I had to wait until all the matches were done before I could decide what the best matches of December were. That's just the way it works. Hope everyone had a good new year, and uh, at the end of this podcast, we'll find out my top 10 matches of 2023. Will there be any new additions from this month? We'll have to find out. What I will tease you with is the knowledge that... I might have swapped two matches around in my top 10, having revisited them and changed my mind slightly. Ooh. Anyway, enough preamble. Let's crack on. It's time for Matches of the Month. The only way to survive the night what? is to make it all the way to the world's end. We are going to get to the world's end if it kills us. Oh, no. Yes, of course, it only feels right to start by talking about World's End, the big pay-per-view in recent memory. This show got a lot of flack, didn't it? Like, uh, people were down on this, saying it was like the worst AEW pay-per-view of all time. I don't think it was. I don't think it was the worst they've ever done. I think it was low down, but I think that speaks just as much to the high bar that AEW pay-per-views have set over the years, as much as it talks to, it speaks to like the potential weakness of this show. So I don't think it was as bad as people are making out, but... I do agree with quite a few of the criticisms anyway. There was good stuff on the show, which is why we're here. So let's start by talking about, I think, my favorite match of the night, Eddie Kingston versus John Moxley in the Continental Classic Final. Um, the first line of my notes here says, good stuff, very clangy-bangy, clangy-bang. That basically sums it up. I don't really know what to say about this match other than it was what you'd expect and want from Moxley versus Kingston in the final of a big tournament. Uh, yeah, by that, I mean it was kind of mean and macho, Ultimately, there was, a, there was an underlying respect, wasn't there, between these two friends or former friends, I'm not quite certain. Brian Danielson did a great job on commentary, adding to this sense of tension because he openly disdains Eddie Kingston, whereas Moxley has this lasting respect for him, even though 
Moxley and Brian are stablemates. So that worked really well. Uh, in terms of the match itself, I really enjoyed particularly the use of the Bulldog Choke, which, of course, Moxley used to beat Eddie back when he was in the midst of his AEW title reign, but it didn't get the job done here. Then Eddie, Eddie, I think, got it on him, and then he got it on Eddie, and neither man was able to use it to put the other one away. Finishing sequence was great. I loved all the strikes and everything. They're both really good, and I think everybody knew once this match was confirmed, once the tournament, like the basically the semifinals were said and done, I think everybody knew that this was going to be a great matchup in the final, and it did prove to be. So great stuff there. One thing I don't understand is like what the tournament was for. The Continental Crown is how they announced it. Not the Triple Crown anymore, but, you know, Eddie got the three belts. The belt for winning the tournament and the existing, you know, the Ring of Honor World title and the New Japan Strong title. I don't really understand because he very much is a triple champion if you look at the three belts, but then they're not referring to it as that anymore. Not that I've noticed anyway. Strange. Anyway, I have two big questions coming out of the Continental Classic. Why did Eddie win? Not not because I disagree with it. I think he's a great winner, but is this to keep him away from any big, meaningful storylines high up the AW card? I often worry that Eddie gets kept down a bit by Tony by sidetracking him with stuff like the Ring of Honor title run. And I don't know why. I guess just because Tony prefers people like MJF, Adam Cole. They have their strengths, certainly. But I've always looked at Eddie Kingston as someone who can really carry multiple main event level feuds back to back to back just because his promo game is so good. And then he can back it up in the ring. Uh, I think he's one of the best promos in the entire world. So, I mean, I'm biased in his favor because I'm a big fan. But if I was running a promotion and I had Eddie Kingston, I'd be booking him differently to how AEW are right now. He's got all the other stuff to do now with these three other belts. And if so, don't really know why. Um, I want him to be having more personal feuds, not even necessarily with a belt, just being Eddie Kingston. My other question is a smaller question, but what does this mean for the Ring of Honor world title and its legacy? I guess the bigger question is, what does this mean for the promotion itself? Ring of Honor, I mean, because their belt is now part of a triple crown. doesn't really get referred to much on its own. And it's got this whole legacy and history behind it. Not just the belt, but the Ring of Honor brand, the promotion and everything, and what it represented in the 2000s. So we'll have to wait and see, but it's kind of depressing times for Ring of Honor fans. Best match of the show, in my opinion, was, of course, Christian Cage versus Adam Copeland. I was worried... This would go the route of other latter-day Adam Cole slash Edge pay-per-view matches, which were, you know, overlong, trying too hard to give it an epic feel. And I was pleased to be proven totally wrong by Copeland here. Instead, he made this match exactly what it should have been, and hilariously over the top as well, which worked in its favor. You know, from the moment he came out in that WrestleMania Street Fighter attire that he wore against Mick Foley, there was always going to be the expectation of craziness and specifically fire, which we got. Hopefully Nick Wayne was okay after taking that bump. Not even through the table, like off the edge of it. It looked really nasty. Um, apart from that fire spot, I really enjoyed the cartoonish villainy and the cowardice of Christian, which in turn elevated the heroism of Adam Copeland. I have mixed feelings on the finish or the aftermath where Christian... Stole Luchasaurus's cash-in. I wasn't certain whether it was made clear enough that Luchasaurus had a cash-in sort of contract at any time of his choosing after he won that battle royal. And even if that was made clear, I don't know how I feel about it. It's very on-brand for Christian. It's very funny. Yeah, you know what? I, I think I liked it, ultimately. It, and I like the furthering of the tension between Luchasaurus, or Killswitch, excuse me, and Christian Cage. That's all great. It was more just the technicalities. Did they make it clear enough that this was for a title shot at any time. And is that an overpowered prize for a, a pre-show battle royal? You could say maybe it is. But I enjoyed it. You know, you couldn't watch this match and not enjoy it. Lots of stuff to put a smile on the fans' faces. And both guys did their best and tried really, really hard. And 
did stuff that I would never want to do because I'm scared. So fair play to both of them. MJF versus Joe, I'll mention. It's not one of my matches of the month. I thought it was fine. Cool. I was shocked by the ending and I have mixed thoughts. On one hand, I don't know if this is how I would have had MJF's title reign end. I get that he's, bang, he's banged up, he's injured, he needs a rest. And I get that this person in this match would likely have been Adam Cole taking the belt from him if he had not gotten injured as well. But why not have MJF lose to someone like Swerve rather than Samoa Joe, someone he's already beaten? On the other hand, Joe brings an instant air of legitimacy, doesn't he, to, to a world title. I'm a little bit worried he'll be kind of a glorified transitional champion, eventually losing it potentially to Swerve Strickland. But we'll just have to wait and see. And obviously, I wouldn't complain about Swerve being champion. I would just complain about not getting the most out of this Joe title reign. And as much as I say, like, I w- this is not how I would have had MJF's reign end, you can't complain too much about Samoa Joe being a promotions world champion, can you? The Cole Devil stable reveal stuff, I was a little bit underwhelmed by, I guess just because everybody had already kind of worked it out online. Certainly, the identities of the cronies, Wardlow and Taven and Bennett, if not that Cole himself was the leader, but oh, it was all right. Um, I don't really know. I'm kind of unenthusiastic about it, which is a shame because I think had Cole not got injured at that really bad time, this could have been maybe a lot better. I'll mention the opener as well. Again, maybe not in my top 10 matches of the month, but it was cool. Fun eight-man stuff. I'm not surprised it was good given the talent involved. I just didn't carry much excitement into the match because it was an eight-man tag between the guys who didn't win the Continental Classic or most of them. But they instead made it really enjoyable, a great choice to open the main portion of the show. And I like that Daniel Garcia got the pinfall, uh, and I think it over-delivered as a pay-per-view match, so fair play. Uh, Miro versus Andrade, I enjoyed as well, apart from the finish. Does this CJ Perry stuff make sense? Or I guess more importantly, will it make sense down the line at the time of recording? It hasn't really made sense yet, and I'm not sure if I have the confidence that it will. Um, Credit to Andrade as well for giving a big effort, despite it very publicly being his last match with AEW. And to be fair, that works both ways. Fair play to AEW for not having Miro absolutely squash him on the way out, which they could well have done. So there we go. Now, we've already mentioned the final, uh, but we're going to take a closer look at some of the earlier matches in the Continental Classic. On the whole, I'm not sure if I enjoyed the tournament or not. There were some very good TV matches, which we're going to talk about in a sec. But I'm not sure if it had the hype AEW really wanted it to, the tournament itself. People didn't seem fully on board with the stakes. I've talked about the weird belt situation earlier on. Maybe there's a bit of tournament burnout because there's a lot of tournaments in wrestling these days, especially in AEW. But the action, I have to admit, did elevate the competition. And I think that was primarily, and not just because of this person, but it was primarily down to the ludicrous consistency and versatility of one man. So part two of this podcast is the Brian Danielson section. Let's go. Eddie Kingston never beaten me in his life and Eddie Kingston is a bum oh my god half and half the half and half Danielson rolls through swing and a miss roundhouse kicking caught him on the shoulder no oh god I think we're one strike away from this match ending the Oregon that might be the strike that Eddie needed. Oh, Eddie, he's not done yet. Daniels is still holding on. Holding Eddie! The stack! Three! Right, yeah, let's kick this off with uh, the opening match of his run in the tournament, Brian Danielson, uh, taking on Eddie Kingston. 
one of two times they clashed in the tournament. This was a TV match, but it was also literally a TV match. What I mean is, didn't feel like how they would have had this match on pay-per-view, but that's not a sin because it was on TV. And I don't think it was either man on full throttle, but they told a good story, mainly the story of Brian being banged up going into the tournament and this being Eddie's big chance to beat him, only for him to blow it. Um, and knowing that they would clash later on now, in retrospect, I appreciate this match a little bit more and why they did hold certain things back for that rematch. Although it was a good opening chapter to Eddie's journey, Eddie Eddie's uh, story and journey in this tournament as well, and they said journeyment. <laughs> um, but yeah, thought it was a good opening chapter, and I think it's a match that I appreciate more now, looking back on it, now that we know the whole story of the tournament. Uh, maybe not the five-star mega classic you'd expect when you hear Eddie Kingston versus Brian Danielson, but I think definitely a good match. Uh, moving on now to Danielson versus Andrade El Idolo. Um, not necessarily the best match of the tournament, but maybe the grittiest. Uh, Andrade with a great heelish performance here, I thought, targeting the injured eye. Excuse me, the injured eye or orbital bone of Brian Danielson. And I got worked by it. This is how it went, right? When the taping happened, obviously we hadn't yet seen the match. And I was sat on that news video on our lovely YouTube channel. And I remember wishing Brian well and a speedy recovery and all the rest of it. And we tutted and we were very disappointed, or at least I was. Disappointed in AW for putting him in this situation when he's banged up. Then the episode of Collision came out and Andrade was targeting the eye very clearly. And the post-match stuff was clearly an angle. And I was like, oh no, I've been worked like one of the marks in pro wrestling. <laughs> it was good though. Very good match. Maybe not as clean as you'd expect from a Brian versus Andrade match. Maybe not as smooth as you'd expect, but that kind of worked for the type of match it was with Andrade being ruthless, Brian having to battle through. Um, and I think Andrade ultimately got the win, didn't he? So yes, the storytelling kind of masked the fact that it wasn't either man's best day. It was still really good. I mean, they're both very talented, aren't they? Um, next up, Brian Danielson again versus Claudio Castagnoli, his stablemate. And I've realized that I love a draw in wrestling. I love a time limit draw. At least one that's earned uh, through the story and through the action. And this really was an example of that. The dynamic in this match really intrigued me. Claudio, as the bigger man, was kind of treating Brian almost like the underdog. But then the match flipped at points because obviously Brian is Brian. And he's, he can't be the underdog. And he's a technical wizard and also has that nasty edge. He can be a real bastard sometimes. And then you have moments of Claudio being the underdog, having to fight from underneath or power up. And I think those bits were maybe my favorite moments in this match. The the moments of Claudio making his comebacks. Um, or maybe his kick out of the running knee as well. That was a very good moment too. Because I think most people just thought the match was over. I also enjoyed the dynamic of it being between stable mates. So I, I like, it was a really unique feel. Because there was this respect at the start. But they're in the Blackpool Combat Club. So obviously it didn't take long before it got really vicious. And I like this unspoken idea between the two. That they were going to get vicious with each other. And neither man complained. They just one-upped each other in terms of the nastiness. Most stablemate versus stablemate matches, you'd get this facade of them playing nice. Then one does something to piss the other one off. And then there's retaliation from the other guy. And then it goes, you know, it escalates from there. But here, it was just straight into the nasty submissions and things would escalate from there naturally. So I really enjoyed it. I thought it made total sense given the characters of both men being really horrible to each other, but with an understanding that that's just the way they are. Um, so yes, no grudges held. The draw was cool. I thought it was the right result, probably. And yeah, really good match. And finally, in the Brian Danielson section of this podcast, uh, the second match against Eddie Kingston, the kind of de facto semi-final of the tournament to get through to that final match. Um, 
because that's how semi-finals work, Jack. Come on. Uh, this was more like it. I mean, I liked their first match, but this was better. Again, I don't know if it's fully the best possible version of a Danielson-Kingston match, but it was a big development. I don't know necessarily if it was an improvement because their first match in the tournament had its purpose and set the table, but this was definitely a big development of their opening match. Stakes were obviously raised here with it effectively being the semi-final, um, a tiebreaker at the end of the Blue League, I think it was. And also, not only did the action escalate, but the sense of hatred and disrespect escalated a lot as well. I love that Eddie starts off the match on top because everyone would assume it would be Brian doing his... Whenever Brian's the heel in a match, even though he's kind of a tweener, but whenever he's facing a babyface like Kingston, he normally takes control early, doesn't he? Um, stalling, grinding them down with submissions. Eddie didn't fall for that at the start. You know, he was full throttle from the off. And when Brian rolled to the outside to try and stall, Eddie followed him with a big dive. Um, and eventually, Eddie's so on top that Brian has to cheat, gouging his eyes, which is very un-Brian Danielson behavior. And I like the fact that Eddie has driven him to this point and the fact that Brian hates Eddie so much that he will let himself go beyond his usual breaking point. Later on again, Brian acts quite out of character. Certainly for the, maybe not the, as vicious as we've seen him since maybe his like, Ring of Honor days in the 2000s. Like, yes, he's always loved, he's always retained a bit of that, holding on to holds too long, kicking people's heads in. But when he spat on Eddie, that felt like a special level of disrespect reserved for his opponent here. And Kingston's reaction to that is great. Kingston generally in this match was great. His selling of the running knee was absolutely fantastic. I loved that sell. This was probably my favorite tournament match overall. I love that Kingston won, and I love that Brian didn't shy away from losing in the final on commentary, going, how did I lose to this guy? Awesome stuff. I want to again re-emphasize, even though he didn't win the whole thing or even make it to the final, just how crucial the fact that Brian Danielson was in the relative success of the Continental Classic. So great stuff there. Now let's move on beyond AEW to some other promotions. I've called this section Other Stuff in North America. Up to the second rope. Is he going to really try to do this? He is looking for a skull-crushing finale from the second rope. Cover and miss! It's your turn right now! The champ is down! Miss and Gunther rolling away and out of harm's way! Oh, Miss just lost his bearings for a second, rolled the wrong way for a pin, and that was pivotal! There's only one place to start, and that is WWE with a match on Raw. Gunther versus The Miz. Yeah, the second match between the two for the IC title. And I wish that pay-per-view match hadn't happened, the first one. Or more accurately, maybe, I wish that this one was the pay-per-view match. I much preferred it to their first encounter, which wasn't bad. I really enjoyed the, I guess, the mission statement of this match more. The, the emphasis on Miz in the first match was weird, fighting fire with fire and trying to hit all these strikes and stuff. I think this second go was much more what it should have been in the first place, Miz not being able to wrestle on Gunter's level, desperately hanging in there, and then benefiting from a bit of good fortune, Gunter injuring his hand on the ring post, and then Miz taking advantage from there. I thought the near fall off the skull-crushing finale was great, but even better than that, an even better moment, was after the avalanche skull-crushing finale, after which Gunter rolled out of the ring like a coward. And it was such a very un-Gunter thing to do, so hypocritical, and he got all the heat for that, which was fantastic. So yeah, this, this second match between the two was very enjoyable indeed. People often, you know, criticize The Miz for being pedestrian or sloppy or I guess maybe a bit flimsy in his striking. But it worked here because, as I say, he's not meant to be on Gunter's level. He's just trying to be on Gunter's level 
and ultimately failing. So I really liked this match. I liked it a lot. Let's take a trip down now to NXT to talk about the men's Iron Survivor match, which is worth a mention, but doesn't crack my top 10. I was really excited for these matches, these Iron Survivor ones, because the previous year, they were really good at the first deadline show. Brand new stipulation. The women's one set the scene, gave us the basic formula of the match, and all the women in it did really well. Later on in the night, the men's match took that and escalated it to a different level and was great. And and the men's one, I think I've said this before, the 2022 Men's Iron Survivor match was one of my, genuinely in my top 10 matches of 2022. It was an absolute sleeper hit. Fantastic stuff. Um, I couldn't believe how good it was. So I was really excited for the 2023 versions of these matches. And uh, I think the women's one was all right, but just not just kind of a worse version of the initial women's one. The men's one went for a totally different tone or different route. And it was close to the kind of the heights of the first one at points, but it didn't hit those heights nearly as regularly. And I thought the ending was also uh, a bit... I mean, the ending will be divisive. Some people loved it. I imagine it was electrifying live. I didn't really like it, unfortunately. So this is a case of, I guess, how much can the ending of a match affect the rest of it? Because... Many people loved this ending with Trick Williams going on this miracle run. You know, he's down big on points and then he gets, what, four falls in the final minute just running around, pinning people, hitting big moves. And it was a little too much for me, a little bit too far, maybe a bit too far-fetched, especially because Trick's a really... He's kept strong in NXT, but he's never been that guy who can just bulldoze people. He's big and powerful, but that's not fully his game. Anyway, my prediction before this match and what I think I maybe hoped would happen more than expected anyway, was for, instead of Trick to just win it right at the end, I thought he would end it tied with Bron and they would go to sudden death because the Iron Survivor does have a sudden death rule in place. And then I thought Trick would pull out the underdog victory there over Bron in the following sudden death portion of the match. But yeah, as I say, I don't think that's, if I'm really honest with myself, I don't think that's what I actually thought would happen. It's just kind of more what I wanted to happen. I think that would have been more effective anyway than just for what happened, which was Trick just gets like a Super Mario star, just runs through everyone before the time runs out. So I enjoyed it up until that final minute. And then it might have cracked my top 10 then, but the, and some people will love that final minute of the match. I just didn't, unfortunately. Um, right, moving on elsewhere to Ring of Honor because final battle took place. There's a couple of matches I want to talk about from that show, starting with the main event. For the Ring of Honor Women's World title, Athena defending against her protege, her like sidekick, but one who she mistreats, Billy Starks. It's a classic story in wrestling. The top dog versus the downtrodden sidekick. It's kind of, it's like DBRC Virgil stuff or Batista Triple H, you know. Um, uh, there were unique elements here as well, separating it from those other types of stories. Billy uh, Starks is very young. I think she's like 19. And to, for her to main event, yeah, Ring of Honor is not once what it was, but it's still a big pay-per-view with huge names on the card. For her to main event that show so young and go almost half an hour with a great wrestler in Athena, it was very ambitious indeed. So let's dive into how it went. Billy was on top early on. And then Athena turned the tables with a vengeance and Billy was busted open early, rammed into the ring post. Don't worry, I don't think it was hard way. I'm pretty sure she bladed. And this match wasn't a perfect match. There were some miscommunications, not miscommunications, but some like slight half miscommunications or slightly sloppy moments. But I think the positives definitely outweighed the negatives here. The negative would be, as I say, it wasn't the cleanest match. 
the connecting stuff between the big spots maybe wasn't always as smooth as it could have been. And not in a deliberate, we're exhausted and fighting through it way. Just in a, you can see the cogs turning kind of way. I mean, the good stuff was really good. Athena's performance, I think here was amazing. Marshalling this younger wrestler through an epic match. And Billy, again, once again, she's 19 years old, just grew into it more and more as the match went on. Started off and I was thinking, ah, she's doing okay, but like, not what I thought. And by the end, I was like, she's awesome. So she, yeah, she really grew into this match. She rose to the occasion hugely. The high spots down the stretch absolutely paid off as well, especially a terrifying, I don't know what it was from Billy. It was almost like a one-winged angel thing on the apron. And uh, that almost turned the tide of the match, but then Athena won, as she probably should have done. Because she's been, as women's champion, she's been like the lone bright spot for Ring of Honor throughout most of 2023. And uh, yeah, don't know if it's, it's a very competitive month. I don't know if it's going to be in my top 10 come the end of the podcast, just because once again, it wasn't the cleanest match. But as a spectacle, as a big main event, big fight feel and all the rest of it, yeah, they absolutely rose to the occasion. So well done to both women. The other match I want to talk about was the the fight to honor Jay Briscoe match. Six-man tag, uh, Mark Briscoe and FTR taking on the Blackpool Combat Club, Brian Danielson, John Moxley, and Claudio Castagnoli. An absolutely stacked match in terms of talent. But I thought, I got confused in the build. I thought this would initially be a fight without honor. I'm not sure if I just wasn't paying enough attention or if they changed the stipulation later on. So what instead happened was we got a very fun 20-minute six-man tag with rules and everything, like a normal six-man tag. They all got counted out, brawling on the outside. Then Mark Briscoe got on the mic to say, that's not how his brother would have wanted this to go. This will be continuing with no holds barred. And then we got 10 more extra minutes of fight without honor, what I was hoping for. But to be honest, there was stuff to enjoy in both sections of the match. Even though the normal six-man tag had a lot of... PWG, or often AW gets criticized for it as well, a lot of uh, breaching of the, or ignoring the tag rules, a lot of everyone just standing around in the ring for ages and not pay attention to the legal or illegal men in the match kind of stuff, which I do sometimes struggle to enjoy because I'm a very boring individual. <laughs> but if there was ever an occasion where we can turn a blind eye to that, it was probably this match. And it, I mean, I don't want to just say that was the only thing that I noticed about the 20-minute opening portion because uh, there was some really good bits. The near falls were really good. Double team moves were really good. All that sort of stuff. The intensity was off the charts. And then when the second part of the match began and the, like, the violence started happening, then it got very fun indeed. It was quite obvious, I think, just given the nature of the, the reason behind the match that Mark Briscoe would get the winning pinfall for his brother. But I didn't expect it to be on Brian Danielson. That was a very nice touch indeed. I also enjoyed that FTR weren't just backing Mark Briscoe up, but saving the match at various points as well, breaking up pinfalls. Uh, Cash at one point was caught in a double barbed wire assisted submission and refused to give up because he didn't want to cost Mark the match. I love the story. I love the emotional storytelling elements that were present here as well. I don't think it was the most like logical or sensible match of the month, but that was never the point here, nor should it have been either. I thought it was very fun indeed, very entertaining. And most importantly, a very fitting tribute to Jay Briscoe. So what more can you really ask for? Um, and finally, in the North America section, we're going to head to Mexico to CMLL for Rocky Romero versus Mascara Dorada for the NWA World Historic Welterweight Championship. Just to clarify very quickly, I think I've mentioned this when I've mentioned it before on this podcast. Mascara Dorada is not Grand Metalik. He previously went by that ring name, uh, but now I think it's just Metalik. Uh, Mascara Dorada, the current one, is like 22 and is potentially the future of CMLL. That's what people seem to be saying about him anyway. And watching this match, you can totally see why. 
This was a rematch of their great bout in the summer and possibly an even better one. I've said it before. I think doing this podcast, I've kind of discovered that maybe Lucha Libre often isn't the style of wrestling for me. What we, what I mean by that is, I know that Lucha Libre comes in various forms or Mexican wrestling comes in various forms, but I mean what we think of as typical Lucha Libre, the high-flying acrobatics and all that stuff. I think there's absolutely a time and a place for that sort of action, but I feel like it often overshadows or disrupts the story of the match rather than enhancing it. This match, though, was definitely more palatable to me than I usually find this sort of match. There were certain instances, yeah, where psychology kind of went out the window or there was no selling or the shaking off, more accurately, of quite devastating moves done quite quickly. I can forgive it quite a bit because there was always a storyline running throughout. Quite a simple storyline, too. This cocky, arrogant heel champion, Rocky Romero, has been doing some great underrated work in Mexico for a lot of 2023, so fair play to Rocky. Um, and he thinks he's better than this chosen one youngster, Grand Met- uh, not Grand Metal League, damn it, I've done it, I've made my own mistake. He thinks he's better than um, Mascara Dorada. But he isn't better than him. That's the point of this match. Rocky tries everything, but it's Dorado who gets the win. And everyone's very happy. And I know I've kind of... I would recommend watching this match because the action's really good. But sometimes the story just needs to be that simple. And sometimes wrestling is that easy. I think I might be lower on this match than most people. I think I might have underrated it very slightly. But as far as this style of match often goes, according to my own taste, I really enjoyed it quite a lot. And you can't, you can't ask for more than that. When your own personal opinion can get changed or at least bend, bent a little bit, I suppose. That's what I'm trying to say. It can, get, it can get swerved very slightly by a really good match, regardless of the style. So congrats to both guys. Maybe CMLL will continue their great form this year. We'll have to wait and see. Now we are off to Japan. Of course, it's where the good wrestling often lives. その全日本プロレスを This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So we're going to start with the match that I think I was most excited for in December this, or last year, in December 2023, because it's been built up to kind of for half the year, if not more, all Japan pro wrestling. Katsuhiko Nakajima defending his newly won title. He's just gate crashed that company, left nowhere, come over to all Japan. He's already the champion. Now he wants to face his nemesis, who he did beat earlier in the year as well, Kento Miyahara. Uh, the ace of all Japan, but one who seems quite vulnerable against his old friend and old foe. And uh, their first match of the year in Noah was is still in my top 10 matches of the year. There's no doubt it'll stay there now. This match, interesting. Very different to our first match. I thought this match was just going to be a slightly tweaked or updated version of their first one. What I didn't see was this becoming something quite different. And I don't know if it was to the match's benefit. Maybe I was guilty of overhyping this bout in my mind. What I mean by that, I'll explain what happened. Nakajima makes his entrance and you've got the rumble in the jungle stuff, the crowd going, Ali, Bomaye, Ali, Bomaye. And he comes out and it's very Inoki. Obviously, Inoki famously fought Muhammad Ali or worked a match against Muhammad Ali. Um, so... Nakajima comes out as like this disciple of Antonio Inoki. Buzzed hair, shorts, like MMA shorts. I forgive me, I don't know who the dude was with him, but he came out with a guy, probably someone very significant. I'm so sorry I didn't recognize him. But he's wearing, this guy's wearing like the red Inoki scarf. And, it, you know, it gets even more blatant because the match begins in what I thought was going to be this blood feud, both men tearing into each other. And they did at points, but I thought it was going to be that from the off. And instead, Nakajima mimics Inoki's tactics for a while against Muhammad Ali. Like, you know, like lying on the canvas feet first, edging his way towards his opponent. It was a really, it, to be fair, I guess it's it's quite a big statement to do this in all Japan rather than in New Japan. And it makes him look like a bit of an iconoclast or like going against the grain of the King's Road and everything. So I understand the point that he was trying to make. I just don't know if it made for that exciting a match, especially one that should really have been 
an intensely personal blood feud. It was weirdly paced a little bit as well. I've criticized this match a lot, and I did enjoy it ultimately, but there was a really slow start. Then Kendo Miyahara hits a pile driver on the apron and suddenly is hugely on top. But then it didn't take Nakajima that long to get back into the match. Maybe not as long as I'd have hoped because it was a really devastating looking move. But then the next big section, he goes to the arm. He works the arm of Kento Miyahara quite a lot. Then we get into, then things get pretty good. We get into what we'd expect from a modern Japanese main event, the exchange of big moves, excellent strike exchanges, especially from Nakajima is like one of the best strikers in the world. Uh, they're countering each other very smoothly. It's all the great stuff like that. Um, the arm work, ultimately, I, d- I didn't like it at first, but it, I did like that it paid off because he won with a submission against Kento. So that ended up making sense. I would have predicted prior to this match that Nakajima would win. Even though he won the first match and you might expect Kento to get his win back, I would have guessed... Cor- <laughs> I'm trying to blow my own horn. I would have guessed correctly, guys, because Nakajima's so new to the company and is such a new champion. I don't think it would have made sense for Kendo to beat him yet. I think he'll get revenge down the line. I want to be clear, like, the work between the two men, this was an excellently worked match. And if I'd seen it in a vacuum without any prior knowledge of the feud behind it, it would probably be higher in my 10 matches of the month. But I far preferred their first match from earlier in 2023. Um, Not because of the action and the stuff they physically did inside the ring, which was top-notch, of course, but because I, I... didn't expect this match to tell the story it did. As I say, I thought this was going to be a blood feud, not a clash of wrestling styles and philosophies. So it was an interesting way to go, though. It was memorable. I'll give it that. Next up, Stardom, where it was the final of the tournament for the big belt, which is vacant in Stardom at the minute, the Wonder of Stardom Championship. Uh, sorry, the World of Stardom Championship. The Wonder's the secondary title. The World of the big one. That was vacant going in, and we had this tournament final between Suzu Suzuki, my girl, uh, really, really enjoy her. Probably my favorite stardom wrestler at the minute. Taking on Micah. Not one I'm too familiar with, but she was part of Julia's Donna Del Mondo stable. Um, powerful, strong. Now she's without the stable because Julia's obviously leaving and the stable has been disbanded. So it'll be interesting to see what she does next. But um, this was this match kind of represented the end of a tough 2023 for stardom. A um, lot of injuries and stuff, which explains why this match maybe wasn't between the two people that Stardom would have planned for it to be between. But they made up for it by definitely bringing the intensity. But I think the intensity should have maybe been a little bit, even a little bit more. I know that sounds weird to say about a modern Japanese main event. I'm often saying, God, I wish this match was 10 minutes shorter, or I wish they'd just ended it with this sequence instead of kicking out of all these moves. This, In this case, I wish it had gone a bit more and been a bit more epic. It was about 20 minutes long, which is plenty of time for a match, but... I was kind of shocked by the abruptness of the ending, I guess. It wasn't helped early on by a quite a tame table spot, which went a bit wrong and kind of robbed the match of its momentum for a little while. There was a head scissors off the apron, or like a Frankensteiner, which didn't quite connect as, as nicely as it may have. And the table collapsed quite gently and it was all, it didn't have much snap to it. And I think if they'd really nailed that spot, as they probably would have done on most other nights, I think that that would have pushed the match on forwards. But instead, it ground it to a halt and they had to work their way back in. I, I, that's how I felt watching it anyway. Still, as I say, even though this only went about 20, even though this went about 20 minutes, the finish still took me by surprise. You know, Suzu Suzuki is my girl, but she lost this match. Micah won. And I have to say, I was very impressed with Micah here. It might just be because I'm not too familiar with her work, but I'm going to have to get used to it because she's suddenly the top champion in stardom. And I thought put on a very good showing here. 
as I say, she's strong, she's powerful. I really enjoy her running attacks because there's a real weight behind them. You get a sense that she's really clattering her opponent. And I'm excited to see what she can do because she's probably in a position that she maybe wouldn't have even been planned to be given the company's bad luck with injuries and everything. So let's see what she can make of it in 2024. Good match. Maybe not as good as I would expect given how much I enjoy Suzu Suzuki, but still very, very good. Stardom is still, to me, uh, probably the best like women's wrestling on the planet. Probably, they've had a tough year though, haven't they? They've done very, very well though recently in the past few years. So I think it'll take a bit more to knock them off their throne. I'm still trying to get into Tokyo Joshi Pro and it, I just don't think it's for me. I can't, can't quite let myself get fully invested. I don't know why that is. I know people who are fans of Tokyo Joshi Pro are big fans of it, whereas I'm much more of a stardom guy, I would say. The next match, New Japan Pro Wrestling. This was a big six-man tag and it was on... Uh, one of the Road to the Tokyo Dome shows in the build-up to Wrestle Kingdom. Obviously, that took place on the 4th of January, as always. And we will be talking about Wrestle Kingdom in the first episode of the best matches of 2024. So look forward to that. Um, but this match was unbelievable. <laughs> like, if the if some of the guys involved weren't in their own matches on the Wrestle Kingdom card, this could have easily been its own Wrestle Kingdom match and held its own very, very well. It was very exciting indeed. It was the never six-man title match between the super team of Tanahashi, Okada, and Ishii, what a lineup, taking on the heel team in the United Empire, Jeff Cobb, Great Okan, and Hinare. Um, one half of this match was really fun house show stuff, which the guys like Okada and Tanahashi really excel at when they're not. I think they're just relieved to not be doing like a 30-minute epic, and they can rest their bodies a bit and just have fun. But then the second half of this match developed into a really terrifying contest between Hinare and Ishii. And I think that's, that is what really elevates this match into one of the best things I saw the past month. Initially coming out of it, I thought, man, I really want to see Ishii and Hanare have another big singles clash. But then thinking about it now, I don't know if I even need to see that. I don't know what they left in the locker for that. They tore into each other here. And at points, it felt like this was that excellent singles match that I wanted between the two of them with other guys occasionally interrupting. But then they would stay in the ring. They wouldn't tag out and they'd tear into each other once again. Some of the stuff they were hitting each other with was excellent, excellent stuff. Um, and the match had all the other, so there were slightly comedic bits here and there or bits involving the other people involved. But the story here was fully about Ishii and Hanare. Ishii got the win, but Hanare comes out of it looking better than he did beforehand, which is the best way to lose a wrestling match. And yeah, I, I thought this was very good. Very good indeed. I would, I would recommend checking it out just for the Ishii-Hanari exchanges, which were brutal. Speaking of brutal exchanges, especially ones involving headbutts, <laughs> which we saw a lot of in that previous match, this match had a lot of headbutts too. Some of them worked, some of them uncomfortably snug, I would say. And I realize I've put it in the Japan section, unfortunately. Uh, but it does, it does, I say unfortunately because I'm wrong. It was a Rev Pro match in England. But... I've chucked it in here because it didn't really have anywhere else to go and because it involved two people on the New Japan Pro Wrestling roster. One of them for not much longer, Will Ospreay. He was taking on Gabriel Kidd. They had that feud online, which I think rightly divided opinion. Some people found it a bit trying too hard to be edgy. Both men arguing ferociously with each other on Instagram Live, on social media and everything, and it... it it did feel unhinged, and it did feel a bit like when like Conor McGregor and someone else have like a huge tear-up, but in MMA, you know that it's often Conor McGregor's desperation to sell a fight. You don't really believe it. 
And that's unfortunately what I got here as well. Even though they were saying very personal things about each other in the build, I didn't really believe it. Not just because I know both guys or I haven't seen Gabe Kidd for a while, to be fair, but, you know, I, I, I know that him and Osprey won't mean the things they're saying to each other here. Um, not just because of that. I just thought it came across a bit attention grabby. And then the match happened and I absolutely loved it. I've seen a lot of Osprey matches. It takes a lot for an Osprey match to kind of stand out now because he's got his definite style. Before I watched this match, I saw criticisms online of people saying, oh, this is just another Osprey match. Gabe Kidd is having to work an Osprey match. I didn't think it was. I thought they both catered to each other very well. And I've seen Gabe Kidd have a lot of matches as well. And this might be my favorite Gabriel Kidd match. There's a few contenders, but this might have been the best match I've ever seen him have so far. Really impressive stuff from both guys. They did that whole thing at the start that they often do for boxing matches or whatever, where you've got the team of security separating them during the ring announcements. But then they flew at each other. They started off hot, which is what it should have been given the build. Osprey was on top early on. A lot of the opening portion of the match was basically a brawl outside the ring, which Osprey dominated. The ref was following them around, telling them to get back in the ring. So it kind of there was there was a bit of lenience involving countouts, but I liked that the ref followed them rather than just stand in the ring and not count them out. Then Gabe turned the tables and was vicious. He's very good at being a vicious heel. Um, both men got busted open. The blood escalated the tension of the match. The crowd were very hot for Osprey. He's like a conquering hero in Rev Pro at the minute. Um, he's like the local boy, Come Good, who's now a world beater. So the crowd always love it when he's still there, always fully behind him. Gabe was doing well getting heat from the crowd. And I really just enjoyed the energy of this match far, far more than I thought I would, just because I wasn't a big fan of the build. But the match itself fully delivered for me. Some of the some of the ending sequence, Gabe Kidd's lariats are terrifying. And some of the ones he hit down the stretch. And then Osprey, you expect Gabe to hit a lariat because his kind of cue for hitting that move is that he hits the ropes front on with his chest and turns into the lariat. So Osprey whips Gabe, runs the other direction. He hits the ropes on his own. Gabe hits the ropes. Looks like he's going to do the lariat thing because he hits it chest first. Turns around. Osprey has already seen it coming and wipes him out with a front hidden blade, which isn't as devastating as the full hidden blade because Gabe then powers out of it at one. I'm not always a fan of kickouts at one, but it worked here. Um, and the move itself was executed amazingly. Osprey let Gabe kick out of quite a lot. The finish was interesting. And again, helped it stand out, even though there's a million great Osprey matches because he won by referee stoppage. He didn't just do his sequence of moves into the Stormbreaker 1, 2, 3. No, he hit the hidden blade from behind and just sat on top of Gabe, who was face down on the canvas and just rained down these elbows until the referee stopped him. Unique finish to the match. One that I guess protects Gabe a bit because yes, he had to get saved by the ref, but he could argue, well, I didn't get pinned. Also one that makes Osprey look really good. And I think the match itself, the way it went... The, the build to that finish made Gabe look really good. So what more can you ask for? I thought it was brilliant. RevPro put on some bangers this year. I don't think it was quite in the realm of Ishii versus Jacobs, which was on a different level. And I, I saw it live, so it was elevated because of that. But I still think this was very, very good indeed. Um, will it make my top 10 of the year, though? Let's find out as we head to the final countdowns of 2023, December and then my top 10 matches of the year. Let's go. So here we go, the top 10 matches of December. Uh, number 10, 
a match that I thought maybe should have done better than it ended up doing, but was still very good. Katsuhiko Nakajima versus Kento Miyahara in All Japan. Number nine, Continental Classic. Brian Danielson versus Andrade El Idolo. Number eight, that New Japan six-man tag team match, the one centered around Ishii versus Hanare. Number seven, the fight to honor Jay Briscoe slash the fight without honor that followed it. Number six, Gunter versus The Miz on Raw. Yeah, it's beat some really good matches there, but I think it deserved to. Number five, Christian Cage versus Adam Copeland at World's End. Number four, Brian Danielson versus Claudio Castagnoli, the time limit draw in the tournament. Number three, Eddie Kingston versus John Moxley uh, at World's End, the final of the tournament. Number two, Eddie Kingston versus Brian Danielson, the semi-final of the tournament. Uh, and number one, the match I've just talked about, Will Ospreay versus Gabriel Kidd in Rev Pro. Strong, very strong indeed. Now, let's look at my final top 10 matches of 2023. So, at number 10, the first match between Hangman Adam Page and Swerve Strickland at AW Wrestle Dream. I thought this was slightly overshadowed by the following match in the feud, obviously, but I still think that it deserves more love than it gets in retrospect. I thought it was a wonderful reception in his hometown for Swerve Strickland. I just thought it was an excellent bout. Number nine, that pretty much hour-long two out of three falls tag match on AW television, FTR versus Bullet Club Gold. Um, R.I.P. the CM Punk-led era of uh, AW Collision. Thought it was wonderful. Number eight, Tomohiro Ishii versus Luke Jacobs. I mentioned it just before in Rev Pro, a match I was there for live at the Copper Box in London. It was uh, all-in weekend. Everyone was buzzing, and it was a very good match indeed. The eighth best match of 2023, in fact, in my opinion. Number seven, Kento Miyahara and Takuya Nomura versus Yuma Aoyagi and Naoya Nomura, the all-Japan tag match that's been in this top 10 ever since January. It's been there the whole time. It was my favorite tag team match of the year. I love the way they tore into each other. And even though I wasn't familiar with every single man in the bout, I came out a fan of all four. Uh, and it also led to storylines that would spiral off and come back together later on in All Japan. I think All Japan have had a very good year in 2023. It hasn't been the best year for any Japanese promotion, but they are the ones that I think made the biggest strides. Apart from the weird Yuji uh, Nagata title run, which felt weird, giving the belt to a 50-year-old legend from a rival company. But regardless, I really enjoyed um, All Japan's year on the whole. Uh, number six, a match featuring two men, now both in All Japan, but this match took place in Noah. Katsuhiko Nakajima versus Kento Miyahara. Obviously, I just talked about the rematch they had this month or last month, which wasn't quite as good, but their first match in Noah, just before Nakajima left to go to All Japan, that was something very special. And I very much enjoyed it. Thought it was... Oh, just looking at my list here, it was my top Japanese match of 2023. Wow, who would have thought it wouldn't be a New Japan match? Fair play. Uh, it was Noah, and now neither man is in Noah. So we'll have to keep an eye on what happens in Noah. Um, number five, Texas Deathmatch, everybody. Swerve Strickland versus Hangman Adam Page. I don't know what else to say about it that nobody, that everyone, you know, hasn't already said. What a, what a match. It's my top hardcore or stipulation match of the year, and rightly so. Number four, the rest, by the way, are all standard rules matches, but not all of them are singles matches. There's one multi-man. We'll get to it. But first of all, it's a match that was number three, and I've swapped it down to number four. Forbidden Door, Kenny Omega versus Will Ospreay. Really, really good stuff. Quite sports entertaining, but with the work rate of an Osprey omega match, as you'd expect. 
But I've swapped it because number three is their first match from Wrestle Kingdom. And the reason that I swapped it out was because I watched that first match again, that Wrestle Kingdom one, and I, uh, it was even better than I remembered. And if I'm honest, probably better than the Forbidden Door match just. It was less cartoonish in parts, but it was still brutal. Uh, and I was shocked by the win for Kenny Omega. Obviously, Osprey got his revenge at Forbidden Door. But I, I now, looking back, I think that first chapter of that feud the, the past year was the superior one. So number four, Omega, Osprey at Wrestle Kingdom. Number three, Omega Osprey. No, oh, damn it. Number four, Omega Osprey at uh, Forbidden Door. Number three, Omega Osprey at Wrestle Kingdom. There we go. Number two, Wrestle Dream, Danielson versus Zach. Brian Danielson versus Zach Sabre Jr. in the best technical match of 2023, in my opinion. Unbelievable. I've talked before about why it was so good. It was technical and intricate, but it also was perfectly easy for any crowd to get into. Fantastic stuff. Number one, it's still number one, and it's the only WWE match on my top 10, and it's my match of the year for 2023. WrestleMania, IC title on the line, Gunter versus Sheamus versus Drew McIntyre. Enough plaudits have been spoken about that match. It was the most fun match, I think, of the year, and also the best one as well. It was unbelievable. Um, uh, What more can you say? And it took place on the grandest stage of them all, which I'd like to stress didn't elevate it in my eyes. If I thought the best match of the year was in a tiny venue, I'd give it to that one. But it just so happened to be in this huge stadium as well. Excellent stuff. Uh, And yeah, congratulations to uh, all those guys. And thank you to everybody for listening. That is my final match of the year or matches of the month episode of 2023. Next, I'll be back with my matches of the month. Excuse me, a little burp just to finish things off there. I'll be back with my matches of the month for January 2024. Could we see anything from the Royal Rumble, perhaps? We'll have to wait and find out. Thank you once again for watching. Thank you to Tom Campbell for editing these all year. And um, yeah, tweet me your thoughts, tweet me your match recommendations. And thank you once again for listening. It means a lot. I've really enjoyed doing this. It's the only solo thing that I've done on the audio feed before, so I was a bit nervous, and I really enjoy doing them, both researching and recording. So thank you once again, everybody, and I'll see you in a bit. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
for all the wrestling headlines in just 10 minutes. Search Cultaholic Wrestling News on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Cultaholic.